It's been 23 years since Jessica Lange has been nominated for an Oscar. Maybe that wouldn't be true if she could be nominated for an Academy Award for her roles in American Horror Story or as Joan Crawford in the TV series Feud. But no, today we're not going to be covering Feud, even though that is based on a true story. Instead, today we're going to be covering another leading lady that Jessica Lange portrayed on screen. Not a leading lady in Hollywood, though, but a leading lady in Nashville. In 1985's Sweet Dreams, Jessica Lange earned an Oscar nomination for her role as country music legend Patsy Cline. And if you're listening to this on the day it's released, then that means today is March 5th. That date is important for our story today because it was on March 5th, 1963, exactly 55 years ago today, when the world of country music was shocked when young Patsy Cline died in a plane crash. In honor of her memory, let's dive into the true story of Patsy Cline as we saw in Sweet Dreams. I'm Dan LeFebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we dig into today's story, let's take a little break and set up our two truths and a lie game. Now, if you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three facts. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay. Here they are. Number one, Charlie Dick never technically married Patsy Cline. Number two, Patsy Cline was not her real name. Number three, Patsy was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame after her death. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two truths scattered somewhere throughout the episode. And by a process of elimination, that'll mean you'll know which one's a lie. Of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. But in case you don't make it to the end of today's episode, you can consider this your official invitation to join the Based on True Story Facebook group. Hop in there and let me know what you think of the show so far. Maybe share your favorite Patsy Cline song. All right, without further ado, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of Sweet Dreams. It's nighttime. An old car from the 1950s drives down the street before pulling into a parking lot just outside an indiscreet building. Since it's dark outside, it's hard to tell what kind of building it is, but a huge banner outside says, Fall, Jamboree, and Dance. Or is that even a parking lot that they turned into? Let's just call it that. Even though there's so many cars, it's hard to see if it's actually supposed to be a parking lot or that's just where everyone is parking. In fact, there's no spaces to park, so the car's driver forces its way into what is most decidedly not a parking spot. So tight is their parking arrangement that the driver, Ed Harris's character, Charlie Dick, along with his date, have to hop out of the car's retracted convertible top because there's no room for open doors. After hopping out, they head on inside to the sounds of a slow country song. In a short period of time, we hear the announcer introduce, quote, your favorite from Rainbow Road, Miss Patsy Cline, end quote. Along with this introduction, we get a sense of timing for the whole scene when there's text fading onto the screen that says it's Winchester, Virginia in 1956. As he watches on, Charlie is fascinated with Patsy. Everyone else is dancing to the music, including Charlie's date, but he's just watching Patsy sing. This whole setup of characters and context is actually pretty realistic. I mean, obviously the actual dialogue and scenarios are going to 
change for a movie as they do with any movie. But it is true that the real Charlie Dick met the real Patsy Cline at a dance in 1956. Even though the movie doesn't ever really come out and show exactly what that building is very clearly, the implication that I got, at least from watching this film, was that it was supposed to be Hanley High School. There's even a brief mention later when Jessica Lange's version of Patsy Cline mentions the high school. For a bit of context, Hanley High School really is the name of the high school that Patsy Cline went to in Winchester, Virginia. However, according to author Margaret Jones's biography called Patsy, The Life and Times of Patsy Cline, that particular dance happened in Berryville, not Winchester like the movie says. Winchester is about 13 miles or 21 kilometers to the west of Berryville. And to be a little more specific, it was at the Berryville Community Center, not a high school. Patsy performed there regularly on Friday nights. But we're mostly talking semantics here in the grand scheme of things. A much larger fact that the movie doesn't mention at all is, at this point in Patsy's career, she was already signed to a record deal and was fairly well known in the region for her hit debut album, Walking After Midnight. But she wasn't singing a song from that in the movie here. As the announcer on stage implies, when Jessica Lange takes the stage to introduce us to Patsy for the first time, we hear her sing San Antonio Rose. And as that announcer correctly states, that is actually an old song from the country band Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys. Although the movie is still correct in showing Patsy sing it because that's one of the songs she covered during her career. In fact, as a little bit of trivia, a little bit of fun trivia, at the very end of the movie, it lets us in on a secret. All of the music throughout the movie comes from actual Patsy Cline recordings. So we might see Jessica Lange singing in the film, but she's just mothing along with Patsy's actual recordings. Going back to the movie, after meeting Charlie for the first time, Patsy returns home to her husband, Gerald. He's played by James Staley. Again, the basic gist of all of this is true, but it's not the whole story. Patsy's first marriage to Gerald is where she got the surname that we know her by. You see, Patsy Cline's real name was Virginia Hensley. She married Gerald Klein in 1953 and became Virginia Klein, or Ginny, as most called her. Then, in 1955, she got the nickname Patsy from her middle name, Patterson. That was given to her by her manager at the time, a man by the name of Bill Peer. The reason why he gave her this nickname is something that's up for debate among Patsy's fans. But as some have suggested, perhaps Bill had a daughter of his own named Patsy, and that's why he gave it to his favorite singer. Or maybe it was just because he thought Patsy Cline was more marketable than Ginny Cline. But in my own opinion, I don't think it really matters. I think with a voice like Ginny or Patsy or whatever you want to call her, I think she would have struck it big no matter what her name was. Or maybe not. By that, what I mean is that in those early years, Patsy Cline wasn't singing the style of song that would end up immortalizing her name into country music's history books. She wasn't a fan of moving away from songs that highlighted country music's staple instruments like the fiddle or steel guitar. But that's getting a little ahead of our story. The next major plot point in the movie's timeline comes when we see Patsy talking to her mom about how she wants out of the marriage with Gerald. Then, without any sort of indication about how much time has passed, we see Charlie propose to Patsy. Maybe it's just me, but the movie as a whole seemed to do this a lot. There'd be bits and pieces of Patsy's life strung together without any sort of idea of how much time has passed from one scene to the next. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. 
And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. In the case of Patsy's marriage to Gerald and Charlie, both of these events are true. And to satisfy the knowledge of how much time passing between those events, not much. Patsy divorced Gerald on July 4th, 1957. A couple months later, on September 15th, she married Charlie Dick. But she kept Gerald's last name, probably because she'd already released her first album, Walking After Midnight, with the name Patsy Klein. After this, in the movie, we have another sequence of events that seem to go in quick succession. First, there's a scene where we see Patsy and her mother, who's played by Ann Wedgworth, chatting about her going on a TV show. Patsy is not her mother. But Patsy convinces her mom to say her name is Hilda Hensley, and she's Patsy's talent scout. Then Patsy sings, and the crowd erupts into applause. After that, the TV announcer says Patsy has won, leading to the next scene where we see Patsy in the recording booth. Now, if you listen to the song that she's singing, the lyrics are clearly walking after midnight. The basic gist of all of that is true, but similar to what we learned earlier, there's more to the story. Let's start with Patsy's mom. Although the movie doesn't mention Patsy Klein's real name, as we learned earlier, it was Virginia Hensley. If that name sounds familiar, it's because it's the same last name that the movie uses for her mom. And that is true, that her first name was Hilda, so her name was, as the movie says, Hilda Hensley. As a fun little fact, Hilda's maiden name was Patterson, and that's how her daughter, Virginia, got her middle name that would end up to turn into Patsy. It is true, though, that Hilda and Patsy had a very close relationship like the movie shows. A big reason for that was because Patsy was born when Hilda was only 16 years old. So the two formed not only a mother-daughter relationship, but really a best-friend relationship as well. Well, maybe I shouldn't have said Patsy was born. I should have said Virginia was born when Hilda was 16 years old, but you get the idea. That brings us to the TV show. Although the movie doesn't ever really mention the name of the show, there is one very brief moment where Jessica Lange's version of Patsy Cline is pleading to her mom to go onto the show to introduce her. And when she does, she mentions uh, Mr. Godfrey. What she's referring to, and the movie is accurate in mentioning this, is a TV show hosted by Arthur Godfrey, who's played by... Bruce Kirby in the film. 
That TV show was called Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, and it ran on CBS from 1946 to 1958. It was similar to what we saw in the movie. In fact, it was even sponsored by Lipton Tea, something that the movie shows. As you can probably guess from the title, Talent Scouts was a talent show where people displayed different talents and the audience voted through a meter that judged the audience applause. So basically, it was a predecessor to America's Got Talent. As the saying goes, there's nothing new under the sun. That particular broadcast that we saw in the movie really happened on January 21st, 1957. Patsy Cline's performance of the title track of her first album, Walking After Midnight, really helped catapult her into the national spotlight. The final scene in that little sequence was when Patsy was singing Walking After Midnight on TV, and then it goes into recording the same song in the studio. Now, if you've been paying attention so far, which I know you have been, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, didn't Patsy Cline already have her debut album out before she sang in the opening sequence? Well, yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean the movie is incorrect. You see, even though Patsy Cline recorded her album Walking After Midnight toward the end of 1956, in early 1957, she was on Talent Scouts, and after shocking the audience with an amazing performance, they decided to rush a release of a single to the radio to follow up the hype from Talent Scouts. That was released on February 11th, 1957, and almost immediately became a smash hit. It'd go on to top out at number two on the country music charts and sell over a million copies. Oh, and as a little side note, Patsy Cline was not the only entertainer to benefit from Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts. A few other names you might recognize that got a big break through that show are Tony Bennett, The Diamonds, Lenny Bruce, Ken Berry, and Don Knotts. And even though they tried out, both Buddy Holly and Elvis Presley didn't make it past the screeners and onto the actual show. Going back to the movie, as Patsy's musical career is starting to take off, a wrench gets thrown into her plans. Really, a, a couple of wrenches. First, Patsy gets pregnant, which forces her to stay home and not on tour. Then, Charlie gets drafted into the army, where he's stationed at Fort Bragg, separating the young couple. That is true, although, again, the movie doesn't give any sort of indication about how much time has passed, and therein lies some confusion with the timeline. So, you know how we learned that Charlie and Patsy were married in September of 1957? Well, it was in March of 1957 when Charlie Dick was drafted into the Army. Charlie and Patsy's first child, Julie, was born on August 25th, 1958. So, the movie clearly flips the timeline around a little bit here. Something else a little bit off with the movie is how it shows Charlie leaving, but Patsy not going with him. To give a little geographical context, Winchester, Virginia is about 360 miles or 580 kilometers to the north of Fort Bragg in North Carolina. And while both Charlie and Patsy still had plenty of connections back in Winchester, they actually moved to Fayetteville near Fort Bragg soon after Charlie was drafted. But living in North Carolina didn't stop Patsy's career, even though for a brief time she thought about retiring to focus on her family. Thankfully, for country music fans, she didn't, and traveled to Nashville for recording, or to New York for TV appearances, or various other places for tours and so on. She was busy. In the movie, there's a scene where Charlie seems to go AWOL by just leaving the base after an emotional call with Patsy and driving back home. That's something I could not find any proof of, but since the movie seems to have not mentioned the young couple's move to North Carolina after Charlie was drafted, Maybe that's how they resolved that by bringing Charlie back. 
In truth, Charlie and Patsy lived in North Carolina until 1959. Oh, and as a fun little fact, remember that one scene where we see Patsy Cline or Jessica Lange's version of Patsy Cline singing Blue Christmas? The movie offers some sort of a timeline when it has the year 1959 on screen as she sings this. Well, if you're a diehard Patsy Cline fan, you'll probably know that she never recorded that song. But wait a minute. Didn't I say earlier that all of the songs in the movie were original recordings of Patsy that Jessica Lange is lip syncing? Well, yes, I did say that because that's what the movie says at the end. But there's no need to send me an email about that. That song, Blue Christmas, was actually added by the filmmakers. But even then, it wasn't Jessica Lange who was singing. She lip synced that song too. The woman singing the song was a singer named Jamie Ryan. Jamie isn't in the movie at all, but the real Jamie Ryan was the woman that Charlie Dick married in 1965 after Patsy's unfortunate death. So, as I mentioned, the movie helps out a bit by giving us another bit of text on screen to date the events. After the singing of Blue Christmas in 1959, we see Patsy meeting Randy Hughes. Then, with text on screen saying it's 1961, we see Patsy going into a recording booth with Randy to record a new song. Randy Hughes, by the way, is portrayed by David Clennon in the film. Unlike Blue Christmas, that song, which we can tell from the lyrics is a real song, I Fall Into Pieces, is a real Patsy Cline song. Although the movie doesn't really mention it, what happened between those couple of years that the movie skips was that Patsy Cline switched managers and record labels. She went from manager Bill Peer to Randy Hughes. And after her contract expired with Four Star Records, she signed with Decca Records in Nashville. Her first release with Decca was the hit song, I Fall Into Pieces, just like the movie implies, even though they don't really say it outright. Back in the movie, after this recording session, we see Patsy singing at the Grand Ole Opry. Again, the movie doesn't really go into many details here, but what it's referring to is correct. In 1960, Patsy was accepted onto the cast of the Grand Ole Opry. That was a massive boost to her already growing career. Now, if you're not a country music fan, basically the Grand Ole Opry is a weekly concert in Nashville that has boasted some of the best talent in the history of country music. One of my friends described the Grand Ole Opry as basically being like Saturday Night Live in the way that it has different members of the cast, except instead of being a weekly comedy sketch show that just happens to have musicians on it, it's a weekly concert. And instead of starting in 1975, like Saturday Night Live did, the Grand Ole Opry started in 1925. And since then, it's become a Nashville institution. Joining the Opry as a regular performer really helped Patsy's exposure to country fans, which only helped her career blow up even more. Going back to the movie, after releasing a popular album that is gaining steam, once again, there's a setback. This time, it's not Charlie being drafted or another child forcing her to stay home off tour. Instead, it's a crash. In the movie, we see a very scary moment when Patsy is driving along with someone named John, and all of a sudden, the car is smashed by a truck. Patsy, who was on the passenger side where the truck hit, is pulled out with a bloody face. She recovers, but has to have a number of stitches on her face. Oh, and John is played by Robert Dash in the movie. That is true. Although she wasn't in the car with John, she was actually in a car with her brother, Sam, and they weren't going to get beer like the movie suggests. They were going to get some clothing so Hilda, who was a seamstress by trade, could make some new stage costumes for Patsy. Oh, and the crash wasn't a sideswipe on the passenger side like we saw in the movie. It was a head-on collision that threw Patsy into the windshield because they didn't have seatbelts back then. 
In the great book by Margaret Jones called Patsy, The Life and Times of Patsy Cline, Patsy recalled seeing the driver of the other car, an unknown woman, die right before her eyes. Seeing that clearly impacted her, even though she insisted the other driver get help before she did. Sadly, it was too late for that driver. Patsy recovered, though, like the movie shows. And just like the movie shows, she did have scars on her forehead that she tried to cover up with makeup or wigs for the rest of her career. Speaking of which, that car crash and recovery time meant she couldn't tour after the release of her I Fall to Pieces album. As a result, she wasn't able to really shoot into superstardom with live performances fresh off the hype of the album. In the movie, after the crash, we see Patsy going back to the recording booth to record a song that everyone knows. I mean, I know we've talked about plenty of classic Patsy Cline hits so far, but if there's one song you know of Patsy Cline's, it's crazy. At first, she didn't really like the style of the song. It wasn't country enough. But thankfully for us, she relented and recorded it. And it is true that, like the movie shows, she recorded crazy soon after the accident. In fact, even though the movie doesn't give us any indication of how much time has passed between the car accident and the recording of crazy, it was about two months. She was in so much pain that on her first take, she couldn't hit the high notes. So the recording was postponed and she ended up recording it later while standing on crutches. After this, in the movie, there's a scene where we see something that we haven't really talked about much up to this point. That's how Ed Harris's version of Charlie Dick treated Patsy at home. We saw him slap her earlier in the movie, and this time he goes much further, hitting her over and over. It's really disturbing, especially when their daughter, Julie, walks into their living room to see Charlie straddling Patsy on the floor, hitting her. That particular scene is something I couldn't verify. With that said, Charlie Dick did admit to hitting Patsy. There were a lot of rumors of arguments and flying fists, but after Sweet Dreams was released, this scene where Charlie was hitting Patsy was one that the real Julie didn't like about the movie. She insisted that even though her parents fought, she never witnessed her dad hitting her mom. On the other side, in an interview with People magazine, Charlie Dick said, quote, Strangers would have thought we were going to knock each other out, but we were just living. We made up as hard as we fought. We had a lot of fun making up, end quote. So, I guess, take out of that what you will. There's no documentation or reports to prove things one way or the other. What we do know, though, is that the movie is correct in showing that Charlie went to jail for a fight that went too far. We just don't really know the specifics of that fight. In the movie, we see Ed Harris's version of Charlie pour out his soul to his cellmate. He tells the story of how his own father committed suicide. According to another great book by Ellis Nassour called Honky Tonk Angel, The Intimate Story of Patsy Cline, Ellis not only mentions that that being true, that was true about uh, Charlie's father, but that scene that we saw in the movie was the very first time Charlie's own family found out about what happened to his father. That gives you an idea of how much Charlie wanted to talk about it, and understandably so. Going back to the movie, after all of this, the movie ends on another sad note. The final song we hear Jessica Lange's version of Patsy sing is the movie's title, Sweet Dreams. That's a real Patsy Klein song, and it's fitting that the movie uses this as the final song that we see her sing, as well as the title of the movie. But in truth, it's not the last song that Patsy sang. 
The performance we saw her singing at was real, though. That happened in Kansas City on March 3, 1963. That day, Patsy Cline performed for a charity benefit for a radio DJ who had passed away in a car crash just a month before. Alongside country stars like George Jones, Patsy gave three performances of her own in a single day. The last one, starting at 8 p.m., wasn't originally scheduled, but it was added after such high demand on her other shows. The final song of that performance, the final song of her life, was I'll Sail My Ship Alone. After this, going back to the movie's timeline, we see Patsy getting into an airplane with Randy Hughes and two other men. We don't see a date. There's some ice on the ground, so it's winter time. Not so much ice that it would stop a flight, though, because we can clearly see the pavement. There's plenty of pavement. It's cold and icy, but it's melting. In the movie, we see Randy's flying a plane. They have some engine trouble. By that, I mean the engine stops. Randy dips the nose to try to gain some speed and restart the engine, and it works. With the engine restarted, everyone breathes a sigh of relief. Just then, the cloud parts, and they can see the ground is right there. Randy pulls up hard, but it's too late, and the plane crashes to the side of a rocky mountain. Sadly, much of this is true, even down to the phone call Patsy made to her mother before taking off. A little under the weather, Patsy was looking forward to an 11-day break from performing. Her next concert was scheduled for the 16th of March. She'd be able to recoup from the flu that had bothered her recently and spend some time with her mom and the kids at home. The weather wasn't cooperating, though. After the concert on March 3rd, there was a cold rain that postponed the group's flight. They had planned on taking off the next day, the 4th, but the cold and wet weather in the morning kept fogging up the Windows airplane, so they decided to wait. Another one of the performers at the charity concert, Dottie West, offered Patsy a ride back with her. She was driving with her husband back to Nashville. But that was a long drive, at least a day or two of driving, and Patsy wanted to get back home as fast as possible to relax. So that meant waiting for a little while to be able to fly and get back home sooner. But they didn't go anywhere on March 4th as they waited out the weather. It was on March 5th when Patsy made the call to her mother. At about 12.30 p.m. on March 5th, Patsy checked out of her hotel. About an hour later, Randy Hughes piloted the plane along with his three passengers. There were Patsy, of course, and two other performers at the charity concert, Cowboy Copas and Hawkinshaw Hawkins. Although the movie never shows it, Randy successfully flew the plane from where the concert took place in Kansas City, Kansas, to Dyersburg, Tennessee. There, they refueled and prepared for the final trip of their journey from Dyersburg to Nashville. That trip is about 170 miles, or about 270 kilometers. And even though the movie shows a moment where the engine stalls and restarts, most historians agree that probably didn't happen. Most believe that the cause of the crash was simply that Randy Hughes wasn't trained well enough. He was a trained pilot, sure, but he wasn't trained on how to fly using only instruments. So as the weather got worse, so did the visuals. Since Randy couldn't fly without seeing where he was going, the plane crashed. Speaking of which, it didn't crash into the side of a mountain either, especially since there's not many mountains in western Tennessee. The biggest and most popular mountain range in Tennessee is the Smoky Mountains, but they're on the eastern side of the state, about 400 miles or 640 kilometers to the east of Dyersburg. The real plane, which was a Piper Comanche and not the Cessna that we see in the movie, crashed into a forest just outside Dyersburg. They didn't get very far. 
The time of the takeoff in Dyersburg was 6.07 p.m. When the wreckage of the plane was found, one of the items found was Patsy Cline's watch. It had stopped as a result of the crash. And the time on the watch was 6.20 p.m. 13 minutes. In the movie, after Patsy's tragic death, Charlie is devastated. One of the final scenes we see is Ed Harris's version of Charlie listening to Crazy in the living room and dancing to it. He's remembering her in his own way. And while that scene is fictionalized for the film, that remembrance is very true. Charlie never forgot about Patsy. Sure, as we learned earlier, he remarried, but that marriage didn't last long. After marrying Jamie Ryan in 1965, they divorced only a few years later. According to many reports, one of the reasons for that divorce was the constant listening to Patsy's recordings that Charlie did. Jamie kept trying to get Charlie to realize that she was his wife now, but Charlie never seemed to get over Patsy. For the rest of his life, Charlie continued to reminisce about Patsy. Then, on November 8, 2015, Charlie Dick passed away. Finally, he was able to lie alongside the love of his life as he was buried next to Patsy in Winchester, Virginia. Now, throughout our story today, there's been a consistent theme, the timeline. The movie doesn't really give a lot of indications about how much time has passed from scene to scene, so it's really hard to get an overall sense of how long Patsy Cline's career actually was. Remember that scene where Patsy Cline started to explode as she sang her first single, Walking After Midnight, on Arthur Garfried's Talent Scout show? That was in 1957. At the time, Patsy Cline was 24 years old. She worked hard to rebuild her career despite many setbacks. The world was shocked with her death in the plane crash in 1963. Her career was just getting started at just 30 years old. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. Even though Patsy's career ended less than a decade after it started, no one can deny the impact that she's had on country music and, well, music as a whole. Ten years after her passing in 1973, she became the very first solo female artist to be inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. If you want to learn more about Patsy's amazing life and career, I'd recommend starting with some of the books I've mentioned throughout this episode. There's Honky Tonk Angel, The Intimate Story of Patsy Cline by Ellis Nassour, or Patsy, The Life and Times of Patsy Cline by Margaret Jones. I'll have links to those books and plenty more resources over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Before we get to the answer to the two truths in a lie game, here's another five-star review. This one comes from Johnny Stitches over on Apple Podcasts, and it says, Top-notch quality and top-notch writing. This is a very engaging podcast. Like a few others, I discovered one episode and quickly went back diving all through the catalog from the show's inception. As a podcaster myself, I respect the amount of research it must take to make this engaging of a show in such a short time. I can't say enough about the quality of this production. It's up there with any heavily funded show, but it's not. It's just meticulously cared for by its strong independent host. Addicting and binge-worthy. Subscribe to it today. Wow. Thanks so much, Johnny. I know I've said this before, but I'm always so humbled when another podcaster leaves a review like this. I don't mean to make it sound like I don't appreciate all reviews, but as a fellow podcaster, Johnny has an idea of how much work it takes to put together a show from start to finish. So I really appreciate the boost of confidence. Maybe I'm doing something right. 
<laughs> uh, by the way, Johnny's podcast is called Serenicide. And if you're into audio drama, I'd really recommend checking it out. Uh, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found or by going to sirenicide.com. That's S-I-R-E-N-I-C-I-D-E.com. Thanks again, Johnny. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Charlie Dick never technically married Patsy Cline. Number two, Patsy Cline was not her real name. Number three, Patsy was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame after her death. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is... Number one, Charlie Dick was Patsy Cline's second husband, the first being Gerald Cline, where she got her last name. Despite some difficult times at home, Charlie remained with Patsy until her unfortunate death, and he obviously remained in love with her for the rest of his life. So now, it's your turn. What's your favorite Patsy Cline song? I mean, I'll admit it, I'm not a big fan of country music, but hearing Patsy sing crazy sends chills up my spine. She had an amazing voice. Hop onto the Based on a True Story Facebook group and share your favorite Patsy Cline song with the community. Or you can also find me on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Or if you're driving and can't reach out right now, you can find all of the show notes and links over at the show's home on the web, basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>